The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. Episode 89 and we're feeling festive with two familiar faces, or at least voices, uh, regulars here on the show, uh, the Wine Society's Freddie Bulmer and spirits writer Joel Harrison. Uh, both join me to catch up on what they've been up to and what lies ahead for them and for us in 2023. Plus, of course, a smattering of medal winners from the IWSC in 2022. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. It wouldn't be Christmas here on The Drinking Hour without a bit of Freddie and Joel. Uh, Freddie Bulmer, the buyer for Austria, Eastern Europe, uh, New Zealand and Australia, from where he's just returned, uh, and a wine judge at the IWSC, of course. Um, he's here in a bit. First, though, Joel Harrison, spirits judge at the IWSC uh, on the judging committee, uh, TV expert, author, keeper of the Quake, Musketeer d'Armagnac, a member of the Gin Guild. It goes on, but also now um, author of a new book uh, dedicated to 60-second cocktails. Um, Joel, um, welcome back to The Drinking Hour. It's great to see you and hear you. Thank you for having me, David. So let's start with that book. Uh, 60 Second Cocktails um, sounds like a great idea, I have to say. What uh, inspired you to do this then? So the driver behind it is pretty simple, really. It's all about demystifying uh, the idea of making cocktails for for a lot of people. So it's a really basic um, book that starts off with... um, equipment you might need and uh part of that is to again to demystify and and bring the barriers down of entry really to people at home who think they might need a lot of equipment to make cocktails and quite frankly you don't i mean for example if you don't have a cocktail shaker you could use a sports water bottle or a kiln jar anything that's going to hold liquid in every single cocktail in the book 60 cocktails in the book um which are broken down into three sections which i'll talk about in a minute but um it's all registered in parts rather than in uh, ml or fluid ounces or anything like that because you might not own a, a cocktail measure at home you might have just a shot glass or an egg cup or anything that you can give yourselves an equal measure of a part in means you can make our cocktails in the book um and then really the sort of final driver behind it in terms of demystifying making cocktails at home was to say to people you can make a cocktail in the same amount of time it takes to select, open and pour a bottle of wine or grab a can of beer and open that and pour it into your glass. Because I think a lot of people go to the kitchen and they think, I'm going to make a cocktail. And then they just go, oh, do you know what? I can't be bothered. I'll open a bottle of wine or I'll open a can of beer. And it's actually not very difficult to make cocktails. So that's the whole point of the book, demystifying cocktail making. The majority of the drinks are 60 seconds. And as I said, it's broken down into three sections. The first section is stuff you can build in a glass, so you don't need any equipment. Second section is things that you might need to shake or have a slightly uh, more complicated element to it. And the third section is uh, where you need a specialist ingredient. So you might have to order that in the day before, like walnut bitters, or there's a particular drink where we we macerate uh, banana bread in rum, which you need to do for 24 hours beforehand to make a banana bread rum daiquiri. So that's the sort of thing. That's a great idea. And actually, those ingredients you mentioned, that specialist stuff, 
mm. you can keep that. It doesn't go off most of it, does it? No, exactly. That's that's the whole point. I mean, a bottle of bitters. You may have seen the like, Angostura bitters that you have at home with a yellow top on and the label that's too big for the bottle. You know, I think there are three things in this world that will survive uh, a nuclear apocalypse, and it's it's cockroaches, Keith Richards, and bottles of Angostura bitters. You know, <laughs> everybody's got them at home, um, and and they're brilliant. Bitters are, a, are the seasoning of cocktails, and you can buy all sorts of different flavored bitters. You can buy you know cocoa flavor, you can buy cherry flavor, you know walnut bitters, all these sorts of things. And a couple of dashes in a drink just bring a cocktail to life, add a real zest and a, and a zing to a cocktail, which is great. And when you look at the bar in a flashy cocktail bar and you've got uh, uh, someone very talented behind that bar normally you've got sometimes you've got smoke rising or you've got you know uh, so many different drinks on the back shelf potentially although there's a fashion for having fewer I know it, it is potentially you know quite intimidating isn't it this is what you're sort of trying to tap into you're trying to say this is not intimidating a hundred percent and I think that's if you look back on the world it's a culinary world in the UK over the last sort of decade 15 years there was a sort of barrier between people saying i'm going to go out for fine dining uh, but i can't do that at home and then certain chefs came along and sort of began to demystify this idea of no you you can do this at home it's not complicated you see good ingredients good technique you know and you can make really tasty dishes at home quite easily what that does is then it pays back into the experience of people going into restaurants because they understand quality ingredients matter technique to some degree matters and yes you can create foams and you can smoke things and you can rotovap things and all these sorts of stuff but the very heart of anything tasty on a plate or in a glass just comes from one great ingredients and two understanding a balance and a mix of flavor and how to put them together and once you understand that then then you'll have a greater appreciation of, of the food and the drinks that you're consuming and, and the money that you pay for it and i hope that this book 60 second cocktails also does that it doesn't take trade away from the from the bars it, it gives people a greater knowledge when they go into bars they can go ah now i know why it's 18 pound a cocktail or now i can understand what these different ingredients are or how they're put together and how flavors work so yeah it's, it's really designed to be an entry level kind of book for people who want to make great drinks at home quickly and easily but super tasty too yeah and fair enough you know we uh, we drink wine at home and we don't worry that it's going to result in people not going to restaurants or not going to wine bars. So there's no reason, really, that we shouldn't get used to making cocktails at home either, is there? Yeah, exactly. And, and that whole, really, the thread that runs throughout the whole book is this sense of ease and saying to people, it doesn't matter if you don't own a cocktail shaker. It doesn't matter if you don't own a measure. You know, it's all about making sure that you are empowered to go into the kitchen uh, and make yourself a, a drink. And it could be a Negroni, which is made in the glass really simply, or it could be something more complicated that requires requires three or four different ingredients shaken up and strained off into a coop it, it doesn't matter they're all quick drinks and i think for me that's that's the key is to to give people that little bit of energy to go yep i'm going to make a, a cocktail as opposed to opening a bottle of wine or opening a can of beer just make it that easy for people and negroni is probably <laughs> one of the easiest and most delicious of them all isn't it in terms of bang for your buck or return on investment in time a hundred percent. And that, and it's the nice thing about that is there's also so many different versions of a Negroni that you can do. And, you know, whether it's the Spagliato, where you take away the gin and replace it with Prosecco, whether it's the slow, I think we spoke last year, maybe it was about the slow gin Negroni. Oh, yeah. And Freddie was quite excited about that. And his dad got quite excited about that as well. Right. So all these sorts of drinks and twists on it and even adjusting the, 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 um, the different ratios, it's supposed to be equal measures. But if you're not a big Campari fan, just lower the Campari up the sweet 
vermouth. You'll end up with something that's less bitter, but still super, super tasty. So those are the sort of sort, sort of tricks you can play with, with a Negroni. And I think the Negroni is one of those drinks that's led people into the idea of, yes, I can make cocktails at home and I can do it in a super simple way, super quickly. Yeah. And do you know what? This taps into what you're really good at, which is hacks, basically. So uh, you have so many kind of clever shortcuts that you just throw into conversation and and really this is i'm guessing you, you've got a few of these tucked away in the book as well yeah absolutely i mean the, the, th- the thing with with hacks with cocktails a lot, a lot of what we've done in this book as well is to draw on store cupboard ingredients so there's a classic old school cocktail which is called a hot buttered rum and basically it's a warm drink using uh, where you melt some butter and you put rum together but we've we, our twist on it is to use peanut butter so it's a hot peanut butter rum Mm. another great drink in here is our twist on the espresso martini which just is, a, is basically a mocha version so it uses a little bit of chocolate spread in there and then there's an incredibly complicated drink in the book it's an incredibly complicated historical cocktail called a, a ramos gin fizz which has a numerous amounts of ingredients and back in the day when it was invented in new orleans would have a line of what they called shaker boys and this this drink would be passed down about seven different shaker boys along the line and effectively it, it looks like a, a souffle as it rises out of the glass very tall long glass very complicated drink to make and we've got a hack on that called the vamos gin fizz uh you can see see what we've done there and uh, and it uses lemon sorbet because it's a lemon and gin based drink super simple super quick super easy 60 second version of something that in a bar would take 10 15 minutes to make yeah although i'm tempted to get the shaker boys in as well but uh no that sounds like a drink Very good idea. Festive cocktails, then. What what will you be drinking uh, this festive season? Really good question. Out of the book, there's two in particular. Well, there's three in there, but two that I I, I, that 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 hit push my button a bit. One is an old fashioned, and it's using maple syrup. So it's a maple syrup old fashioned. Again, maple uh, old fashioned is a drink that should be complicated. It's it's dissolving the sugar over time as you stir it down. There's a bar in London where uh, if you order an old fashioned, the first thing they do is give you a bottle of beer because it should take time to stir down the sugar and dissolve it. Whereas the, the version in our book just uses maple syrup. Um, as the base sweetener and it's super Christmassy super delicious the other one is called Big Apple which is a a mix of uh, apple juice lime juice uh, egg white and uh, and bourbon and it's shaken up like a sour and uh, strained into a coupe and dusted with cinnamon on top and you get this beautiful cinnamon and apple bourbon combo which brilliantly brilliantly festive but there's also a take on a snowball in our book and it's called nan's sherry trifle and it's effectively a snowball to advocate and uh, and sparkling uh, um, uh, uh, lemonade Uh, but this time it's got sherry in it as well and some other bits and it tastes just like a sherry trifle but i love a snowball you know it takes me back you know that kind of eggnog snowball-y type sort of drink it makes you feel like you're in uh in the Griswolds family uh, Christmas when you have a have an eggnog slash snowball type drink. Well, I historically can't stand a snowball, but I, I tell you, if anyone can sell me a snowball, uh, it's going to be you. So I might give that a whirl. Um, so uh, this time last year, we were still bemoaning the lack of travel and all the rest of it with uh, the pandemic. It's um, all rather different um, uh, now, of course. Um, so uh, you've been doing quite a bit of travelling for uh, your work and your pleasure as well, haven't you? Yeah, I, was just, I literally just got off a, off a flight uh, yesterday afternoon. I was out in Sweden, weirdly visiting a Swedish vineyard, which isn't something, it was a holiday, uh, isn't mm. something that you come across very often, they're no. making sparkling wine called, called Asgard Vineyard. But yeah, I've been out and about, I've been to the States twice this year, once to New Orleans to discover the history of the cocktail 
culture there, which is runs deep in, in the city's veins. Some incredible drinks developed there, like the, the Ramos Gin Fizz and the Grasshopper and the Sazerac and all these incredible drinks that came out of this mix of French and American and, and you know, such a huge cultural mishmash uh, that you see through the food there as well. That, that was phenomenal. And then I also went to Kentucky for a week and had a trip around visiting some different bourbon distilleries and the state of Kentucky and seeing what an incredible place that is to visit and that kind of real mix of, of cultures within that state too, which is just phenomenal. So yeah, I've been out to Cognac twice this year and it's just been great to get out and visit places again, David. You know, it's it, it, I know you've done a fair bit of traveling as well and it's just been fantastic to go and see people and share a drink with them. It's been great. Yeah, indeed. I was away um, each week in October uh, and it was just like the olden days. And it's the first time that that's happened. And it was it was only after I got back, I thought, oh, I've had, had enough travel now, I think. But uh, no, I, I really, I missed it so, so desperately uh, during the pandemic. And it's so important. And and Freddie and I are, are going to talk about that that too. Um, what, what have you got coming up travel-wise? Any good uh, trips to come? Yeah, I think I've, I've already booked in a trip to Ireland for early next year, which is going to go out and have a look at some Irish whiskey, because that's a category that I think is going to be quite important for 2023. I think a lot of people are have got used to drinking good Irish whiskey and now they're looking to drink even better Irish whiskey. And I think that's, especially with the price of Scotch whiskey these days, which is becoming a little bit inaccessible for a lot of people. There's certain brands of Scotch of Irish whiskey, I think that can come in and sort of fill that void a little bit. Um, you know, look at Bushmill Single Malt or you look at the Middleton uh, uh, blend and you look at single pot steel, things like Redbreast and, and Greenspot. People are finding these have the quality and texture and, and personality of Scotch without maybe the price point. And Scotch is ever more pushing into that premium arena, super premium arena. Doesn't mean it's any any less good and it deserves its price point, Scotch whiskey. But uh, but yeah, I think Irish whiskey is going to be a big trend this year. And I'm really looking forward to getting out and, and visiting the, uh, the distilleries out there. This segues beautifully into my next question, which is trends. So what have we seen mm-hmm. in 22 and what's coming in 23 in your spirits world? Well, the big one for me that we've seen a sort of growth of coming through is tequila. Uh, Tequila is one of those drinks that just keeps becoming more and more important. Um, It's becoming more and more important in cocktails. The quality of it's risen. There are more and more brands out there that are becoming interesting and exciting. But the quality of it in its aged capacity as well is also becoming very exciting. I think the undisputed star of 22, which is going to keep rising into 23, is tequila. You know, tequila's always been big in America. You know, the the margarita's always been a lead drink out there. But the quality of tequila has really risen. And over here in the UK, we're actually beginning to embrace it as a proper spirit. And I don't know about you, David, but I I was one of those people who had a terrible experience on cheap tequila in my student days. And it's taken me a long time. You know, it took me a long time to come round to the idea of tequila being great but i'm drinking loads at the moment of tequila and tonic just a good quality silver tequila made from 100 percent agave with tonic it's just less sweet than a gin and tonic it's got more savory notes to it a big squeeze of lime or a, or a sprig of rosemary in there absolutely divine and when you come to aged tequila that's the other thing is sipping tequila has become really big as well 
rested in casks. It's got the sort of same color as a whiskey or a cognac. Super tasty. Again, a bit more herby, a bit more earthy, but just really tasty. But my, my prediction in terms of cocktails for 2023 is, is the Paloma, which is grapefruit soda and tequila. Um, and I was talking to a big bar owner in Manchester recently who said that they're selling more and more and more Palomas. Um, and that's going to be a massive drink in 2023, a sort of slightly more savory version of a gin and tonic, effectively. Um, so tequila is going to be massive, absolutely huge. I don't see the Negroni going anywhere. I think that's still going to be big, the Spagliato and other variations on that. Um, and then I think some slightly more savory drinks will come through. But I also think coconut is going to be a big flavor. Malibu is, is, is without, you know, become a massive drink over the last uh, year or so. And I think I love it. I love a bit of Malibu. There's nothing wrong with something coconutty and sweet and tasty in a cocktail. Stick a dash of it in your in your margarita or in your daiquiri. I think it's super tasty. So coconut, tequila. I think those things are going to be massive next year. And Malibu as well. Well, remember where you yeah. heard it first. Yeah. Um, I, I'm just so right on tequila. Um, I have been educated just in the last year or so on tequila and mezcal because I was well and truly put off by some cheap and nasty stuff in shot glasses. And it's it's not a drink to have a – well, frankly, no drink is a drink to have shots with, is it? But but it's a real <laughs> crime against yeah. tequila, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's just just literally the quality of it. I mean, the biggest problem with tequila is, is going to be supply because – it's made from the agave plant, which which looks like a cactus, looks like a giant um, uh, uh, sort of uh, what's the term I'm looking for? The um, anyway, it looks well, like a giant cactus. Well, it does it's look like a actually, cactus. I was going to say you hit it. Yeah, it's, yeah. on. Yeah, but it's it's actually a lily plant. It's the, it's the same family as a lily, and in order to harvest it to use it in tequila, it really has to be around five years old, between three and seven years old. And so to be able to grow those tequila plants, Blue Weber Agave, to be able to, 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 to grow those quick enough to be able to, to make uh, enough tequila to keep up with demand is it, tough because you need to be growing them three to five to seven years in advance. It's like making aged whiskey. Uh, and and that, that's going to be the biggest problem is keeping up with supply and making sure that the price can stay at a, a, a point where people can still afford to buy it and enjoy tequila. Mm, yeah. And price pressure is going to continue to be a huge issue just right across the board, I think, for, for all of us, unfortunately, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think it's not just, you know, as much as we'd like to talk about the the, the, the price of making the liquid, it's also the glass bottles and the cork stoppers and the shipping of everything. You know, it's going to hit wine, spirits, beers, whatever it is, that whatever tipple you like to enjoy. And I was out in Cognac um, in September twice, once at the start and once at the end. And the cognac harvest season is between, it was it's same as sort of any good French wine, sort of August, September time. But the distillation really happens between September through to March. And the problem that they were facing is they were desperate to get the harvest in and desperate to get the distillation started because none of the cognac producers knew when they might not have the gas to turn the stills on. And so they were saying, we are just trying to distill as soon as we can. You know, it's a process, you know, it's a natural process getting the, getting the grapes fermenting the grapes into the wine and they're not allowed to add any uh, chemicals to the wine uh, any sulfates or anything like that to preserve it so when the wine spoils the wine spoils so they need to make the make the wine distill it as quickly as they can and they were saying we're under massive time pressures because we don't know when the government might ration our gas supplies to, and we won't be able to run our stills and our wine will go off so it's going to yeah. be a sticky time i think into 2023 in terms of supply with something like cognac you won't see that manifesting itself in a bottle for four five six years because of the aging process but would will 2022's harvest vintage be very scant as a result not not necessarily because of the grapes on the vines but because of the processes that go on after it that require things like gas which might 
not be around in in November, December, January. Let's see. Yeah, they are things that we never thought we'd be worrying about. On a happier note, talking cognac, that's one of the judging processes that you oversee at the IWSC. Um, You'll be judging again in a couple of months' time, won't you? I will, yeah. It comes around quick each year. This is like Wimbledon. It seems to get sort of quicker mm. every year. It's, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, really looking forward to that, um, sitting down. Every year it's just great to go through and see what's been produced and how uh, quality is, manu- is manifesting itself in the glass. And I have to be honest, normally it, it, it keeps getting better and better. And I think it's a nice thing to do. It's good to sit down every year blind and, and look at the category and see how the cat- all categories of spirits are developing. You know, we talked about tequila earlier. I mean, that grows as a category in terms of the number of entries, but it also grows in quality. Uh, and it's it's fantastic to see that that's a, that's, it's a real focus for producers these days is actually putting something of quality in the glass, uh, despite all the economic pressures and, and environmental pressures that go around producing natural products that we that we drink. So yeah, it's, I'm excited to sit down and see how this year's quality manifests itself in the glass. Yeah, well, that's a nice positive place to uh, leave it and look ahead to uh, to March 2023. Um, Joel, it's always a pleasure. Uh, as I say, I love the hacks you bring. Uh, I use so many of them uh, myself. Everyone needs to know a good chef and everyone needs to know you, basically. But um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, have a great festive season. Uh, Happy New Year. And thanks for joining thank us you. on The Drinking Hour again. An absolute pleasure. Brilliant. Thank you, David. And Happy New Year. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Time was when Freddie Bulmer was bemoaning the fact that he couldn't travel anywhere. Well, he's certainly making up for lost time with epic trips to Australia and New Zealand just recently. Uh, wine Society buyer for... Uh, Australia, uh, New Zealand, Austria, and Eastern Europe. I can do that off by heart now. Uh, If you ever change portfolio, I'm screwed. Yeah, it'll take you a while to relearn it. It will. It will. Um, We haven't spoken for a while. And in that time, you have been on, uh, based on your Instagram pictures, um, something of an odyssey uh, to Australia. Yeah, it's been amazing. I've been away for quite a few weeks. Did a big old catch-up trip to to Australia. Hadn't been out there for three years, obviously, because of the pandemic. God, you know what? If anything, it just really reminded me how important it is to get out and actually see the people that we're working with face-to-face. There's been an incredible amount of new discoveries, which I'm very excited about. We've started seeing them feeding through already, unless that was work that you had done previously. I, I guess it may have been because of the time, the lead times you have to work with. But you've got some quite exciting new stuff from Australia, haven't you? Yes, absolutely. So it's been really nice that, you know, the Australians are very collaborative. So the couple of smaller producers that I've been working with anyway, on a sort of a direct basis, said, oh, well, if you're coming out here, you've got to go and see so-and-so. And, you know, these guys over in Margaret River are doing amazing things. So it's meant that I've been able to meet a lot of great, exciting, smaller producers, bring their wines hopefully into the UK on some sort of, you know, exclusive basis. And we'll really be starting to see a lot of them landing here in the spring. So there'll be a, an influx of awesome new Aussie stuff, which I'm wow, really looking forward to. Uh, I always say my Australian wine geography is absolutely terrible. I have to consult <laughs> a wine map, you know, every time. And we're not talking here about the way you'd have to consult a wine map unless you were a Burgundy expert for the individual sure. clothes. I, I'm talking about, you know, fundamentals about where things are, big regions are in Australia. I've never visited yeah. as a 
a wine expert I've only visited many years ago as, as a tourist and I, I loved it. So uh, tell us um, where you went and then we'll talk about what's exciting. Where did you go first? Of all? Oof. Well, so it was a hell of a trip. So I landed into Sydney and uh, headed up to the Hunter Valley on the eastern coast. Spent a couple of days in the Hunter Valley before flying to from Newcastle to Melbourne. Did a day down in Mornington Peninsula. Uh, I did Yarra Valley, Beechworth, I uh, went over to Tasmania for a couple of days. That was fascinating. Yeah. And then drove from Adelaide, sorry, Melbourne to Adelaide via the Grampians and Kunawara. Stayed one very bizarre night in Mount Gambier, which was a, an odd place. Uh, but, you know, eye-opening <laughs> for all the <laughs> wrong reasons. Uh, and then when I was in South Australia, I did, uh, well, I based myself in the Barossa for a week, really. So just meant I didn't have to pack my stuff up every night and move on to a different place. But I, from the Barossa, I drove out to the different South Australian regions. Um, so I basically uh, drove out, did a day in Adelaide Hills, did McLaren Vale, Langhorne Creek, uh, Eden Valley, Clare Valley, you name it, and then headed over to Perth and did Swan Valley and Margaret River. So it was uh, a hell of a, a hell of a trip, a hell of an itinerary, uh, and a lot of time on the road. Yeah, you're like Phileas Fogg. Uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> how long did that take? All of that because this is a vast, vast, vast continent, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, in terms of distance, I worked out that I'd done around ten thousand kilometres. Uh, you know, a couple of those were flights, of course, uh, but there was a hell of a lot of driving. Just the the sheer scale of the place is is unbelievable. But it was pretty much, yeah, four and a half weeks of of moving. So you know, I did manage to squeeze in uh, two or three days off over the four and a half weeks, which was much needed bit of time for recovery. But otherwise, yeah, pretty much on the go constantly. So it was huge amount of travelling, but it was a real pleasure to find so many amazing wines. You know, the quality was absolutely phenomenal across the board. Uh, so it was, uh, yeah, it was ripe with, with discoveries. It was fantastic. Before we get to your discoveries, um, what was the weather like? Because um, <laughs> I, 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 I'd lived your trip vicariously. And yes. I have to say, it, it looked like a bit of a mixed picture. There, was an, there were quite a few pictures of wet sort of damp freddy yes <laughs> yes so to speak um yeah it was uh, a lot of floods actually so of course you know going to australia in what is essentially their spring i thought oh good you know be sort of 24 25 degrees and pack a few t-shirts and mm. luckily just before i closed my suitcase i thought oh, i'll chuck a waterproof in just in case probably won't need it uh and i barely took it off for the first three weeks um so they're having a, their third uh, La Nina year in a row. So it's particularly cool and wet and the rain was phenomenal. I mean, in Southeast Australia, when it, when it rains, my God, it rains. So uh, I landed in Sydney and the, the first morning it was nice and sunny. I thought, oh, this is, this is lovely, you know, and uh, there was a couple on the plane actually that said, oh, oh dear. Yeah. The weather's not good. So, you know, just to warn you. And I got off the plane, thought, oh, this is love. This is great. What's the problem? Uh, yeah. That lasted for about three hours. And then the rain started and stopped about three weeks later uh, when I left and headed to Western Australia. But, uh, you know, in all seriousness, they're having a bit of a tricky time out there at the moment certainly in in victoria there was some pretty major floods um i was with a, with mac forbes a uh, fantastic winemaker in that area for a few days and drove from yarra up to beechworth 
which is about a three-hour drive or so. Uh, and it's lucky that we had his four-wheel drive because essentially, you know, there were there were times that we probably wouldn't have crossed the water otherwise. And then we, we got there, heavens opened in Beechworth, and we thought, oh no, you know, we're genuinely not going to make it back. So it was pretty ropey. But um, thankfully, by the time I got over to Western Australia, the weather there was much better. So I ended up, uh, you know, with the with the 24, 25 degree temperatures that I'd been I've been hoping for the whole time, albeit only for sort of four or five days on a four and a half week trip. But it was worth the wait. <laughs> okay, well, you've got a bit of a tan. Um, I should explain to listeners that the technology we use means that we can now see each other as we're recording. It's a bit like yes. uh, a bit like Zoom or something. And uh, you've you've definitely got a, a bit of a tan. You're looking uh, you're looking oh, healthy, thanks. which is which is good. I'm but, looking um, I'm I'm looking red red faced from drinking too much, probably. But, uh, but I'll take <laughs> it. <laughs> Maybe it's that. Maybe it's that. Um, no, uh, you mentioned in all seriousness they they're having a bit of a tough time with the weather and Australia. Um, and it's, I mean, not just it's winemakers, uh, uh, right across the board, anyone who, 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 who relies on the weather for anything. Um, they've had a really tough time of it in recent years, haven't they? Yeah, it's been quite up and down. I mean, they've had years where there's been severe drought. And then the last couple of years, oh, well, look, also, just to point out, it's quite hard to generalize, really, because it's such a huge country. Yeah, of course. And yeah. Margaret River over in WA is almost its own little world. Um, they're blessed with quite a consistent climate there because they're surrounded by the ocean on three sides, which plays this very sort of moderating effect. But um, over in, say, South Australia, they've had, uh, you know, each each vintage has thrown its own challenges at them. You know, sometimes they might have a very hot vintage without any water and they're thinking, God, you know, we could do with some water. And then this year they're praying that the water stops at some point because uh, it's pretty full on. So it's it's tricky, but it certainly is seemingly home to some regions that uh, see quite extreme weather patterns for sure. But then often you get these sort of transitional years where the quality is absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, 2021 in South Australia was this amazing vintage, really good because it was, you know, their second sort of cooler, wetter year, um, but still not too cool, not too wet. This year it sort of remains to be seen whether things are going to dry up and, and uh, you know, we'll see what happens. Obviously, it's very early days at the moment. Um, Flowering's only really just sort of happened um, not so long ago. We shall see what happens there. But yeah, you know, in 2021, it was fantastic. This, this sort of stars aligned, if you like quality of the wine's superb but uh yeah it's certainly not a relaxing job being a winemaker or a viticulturalist (laughs) (laughs) too much like hard work for me yeah absolutely (laughs) i'd rather drink it thank you uh or talk about it um yeah so let's talk about it let's talk about your discoveries so um I, i imagine it's quite a long list but we've got plenty of time so just rattle through some of the things you found oh gosh there's so many so what i did discover was this fantastic sort of uh, undercurrent of really exciting smaller producers who are making genuinely fantastic wines like you know often sort of family-run businesses working on a fairly small scale that you wouldn't you just would not know about unless you were in Australia you know they're not necessarily exporting there's one or two that we're going to be hopefully the you know first people in the UK to bring in which is exciting and yeah the, the quality is just superb so I mean, just focusing on two particular regions um, in Barossa in the South Australia. Well, actually, the vineyards are in McLaren Vale, but um, pardon me, but the the, the winery is in Barossa. There's um, a label called Vanguardist. Now, I've heard a lot of people talking about Grenache in Australia over the last few years. And to be honest mm. with you, when people talk about this, oh, you know, Grenache that's made like Pinot sort of thing, I've been very <laughs> underwhelmed generally. But um, Vanguardist is a winemaker called Michael Corbett, and he's considered by a lot of people in Australia to be the Grenache winemaker and his wines are 
phenomenal absolutely amazing so um i'm really excited to be bringing some of those in and they should be uh hitting our virtual shelves in the spring and then over in uh in western australia in margaret river you know margaret river's home to huge number of small wineries um i can't remember the exact percentages but there's there's a disproportionately high number of wineries in the region uh given how little wine they make overall for australia's kind of total crush but there's a couple of smaller ones south by southwest fantastic people live and midge uh and uh they're making some really cool wines you know working on one hand with sort of the classic margaret river varieties um chardonnay and cabernet but also with uh, a bit of an italian kind of influence as well uh live is, is sort of proudly of italian heritage and they make some really lovely crunchy sangiovese and uh there's a delicious white uh blend that we'll be bringing in as well which is called fiori i can't remember off the top of my head the great varieties but i think there's a bit of reasoning and bits and bobs in there and just really lovely and fun and expressive and i think what's really struck me is how how much a lot of these smaller wineries are focusing on bloody good quality wine but also fun and drinkability and wanting to help people just really enjoy wine um so yeah it's been in, pretty inspiring so there's a lot of cool stuff on the way that's just two but there's a, a whole handful yeah bits and bobs a technical term I, i'm assuming by the way yeah, oh uh, yeah, yeah of course yeah. bits and bobs is technical yeah it's, <laughs> i think it's mw level i think so i think uh, so the yeah, mw is yeah. in the post um yeah, yeah thank you Interesting what you say about uh, Grenache, because um, I, uh, I'm i also a, a little bit weary of people saying it's the next Pinot Noir, it's Grenache-like Pinot Noir, etc. I've tasted yeah. some of this stuff in uh, actually mostly in virtual tastings, um, but um, and it's been sensational. It's a beautiful mm. brand. I love it. Um, I don't think we need to compare it to Pinot Noir, really, to be Completely. honest. It's, it's, it's Grenache. I completely agree. Uh, you know, whenever people said to me, oh, yes, this is Grenache made like Pinot. I say, well, yeah, but just drink Pinot then. <laughs> you know, yeah. Grenache has its own personality. And I think the best Grenache is, is just really honestly made and they're not trying to force it into a box that it doesn't quite fit in stylistically. Um, and I think it is a harder grape to work with than a lot of people maybe realize. Um, you know, I've tasted quite a few where the vineyard clearly doesn't lend the Grenache to that lighter, brighter, crunchier style. But then when that's sort of forced in the winery, you end up with a wine which is often too green, too herbal, a bit sort of austere, but then still with this sort of 14.5% alcohol, which just isn't integrated. Um, so I think it is actually a much harder grape to get right than people realize. So that's why I was so excited by these vanguardist wines. Um, I was really impressed with just the balance, the honesty, the the precision of the wines they're fantastic but then mm. you know again it goes back to the importance of actually getting out there and meeting these winemakers because michael corbett the winemaker is one of the most meticulous winemakers i think i've ever met i mean his attention to detail is phenomenal uh so that's why you know his his wines are so excellent so they are the they are some of the few grenache from australia that i've tasted that i've genuinely been completely bowled over by i think they're fantastic wow okay we shall look out uh, for those when <laughs> they uh, come into the country you've got a very good eye for stuff that's quite cool uh, i don't mean that in a kind of um sort of shallow way i mean i just think you're uh, you, you've got you've just got a good eye for something that is eye-catching and a little bit different um aside from the the, the wines you've mentioned already anything that you're sort sort of quite looking forward to showing off as a sort of rabbit out the hat at the next uh, kind of press tasting or whatever? 
Oh, well, do you know what? There's another producer, uh, uh, again, from Margaret River called LS Merchants, which will be uh, new into us. I mean, they're, I mean, Dylan, who's who's in charge there, is a painfully cool guy. He's an ex-DJ, uh, but he's made wine basically since uni. Uh, he's got a lot of experience now and he's worked all around around the world, actually, making wine. He mentioned that he's worked for some big wineries in Italy, but then also done vintages in Canada and New Zealand and, and, and across Australia. And there was a Chardonnay that he makes, which just knocked my socks off because it's, it's um, you know, pr- small production Margaret River Chardonnay, which smells very much like you would want Margaret River Chardonnay to smell like. You know, you could you could get it in a blind tasting and know where it's from is what I'm getting at. But the precision in this wine is fantastic, and it's so focused and lifted and elegant and 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 just pristine. And so I'm looking forward to getting that in front of a few people because I think it's it's a really uh, exciting wine. But then uh, another one that I'm yeah I, I think is pretty edgy. But then again, you know, the important thing to me is finding finding wineries with great stories but also crucially the wine has to be bloody good quality you know people at the end of the day need to drink it and go god this is absolutely delicious and i mentioned that i would i'd been to tasmania on this trip found a, a winemaker called peter dredge uh who's um quite well known again in australia and, and considered to be one of the more exciting if not the most exciting producer in in tasmania you know obviously there's bigger names like toll puddle they make some amazing wine really amazing mm. wine but uh Peter's label, Dr. Edge, is a bit more under the radar. But uh, it's just absolutely phenomenal Chardonnay and Pinot from Tasmania that tastes properly like, uh, you know, Tasmania. It really speaks of the place. But it's just very cool. When, wait till you see the labels. They're awesome. <laughs> I won't say Good. too much more about it. <laughs> okay. All right. You're teasing. Uh, I've, uh, Tasmania is really on my bucket list. It sounds like an absolutely fantastic place to visit. Yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely gorgeous. I think, um, you know, having been lucky enough to go to New Zealand before, which is probably the most beautiful place I've ever been, I'd say Tasmania is a close second. Uh, it's absolutely amazing. And I'd never previously uh, visited Hobart before, but I managed to spend an evening in Hobart on this trip. And the food and drink scene there is really really exciting there's so much happening you know the produce that they've got in tasmania is phenomenal so it makes sense really that uh there should be so much hype around wine in tasmania currently you know there's lots of new vineyards being planted and i was last there in 2019 and even since then the amount of new plantings is phenomenal so that you know the hype with tasmania is real but i have to admit you know i don't think that just yet across the board the quality of the wines is quite up to the the tassie hype so that's why it's really great to find producers like this dr edge label where actually the quality does match the the hype you know in toll puddle we've known about for a while their their wines are just superb really mm, really good so incredible i think yeah. we'll start to see more producers in tasmania who are making wines that are that are phenomenal but at the moment i do think you need to still be a little bit selective um when they're good they're really really good though yeah great well uh, look forward to uh, those and to uh, dr edge great name we'll talk new zealand the next time we speak because we need to talk about christmas as well so yes. um, it's uh, the run-up to christmas of course presumably gets suddenly gets very quiet but the run-up to christmas obviously your busiest time of the year and it always sounds like it's quite a lot of fun at the wine society oh absolutely yeah it's a very very important time of the year you know we um we do a good chunk of our of our annual business at christmas and as you say you know for any wine company it's uh, it's a crucial time but yeah it's it's a funny one because from a buying point of view christmas really is in sort of july august uh, especially this year when it was 40 degrees or so it was uh, hard to feel festive but that's all done and uh, yeah more recently it's just about uh, all hands on deck trying to get wine out the door 
Um, and even for those of us in in buying where our sort of main job is done, we'll try and help out, you know, fielding wine advice and that sort of thing, trying to make ourselves at least a little bit useful. <laughs> yeah, well, um, it's but, really sweet that you do that. Um, so what you're basically dealing with specific questions uh, from members, are you? Yeah, exactly. So, of course, you know, at Christmas time, people might want to be spending a little bit more on, on the wine that they're buying. They're having friends and family around and uh, want a bit more of a treat. So naturally, there might be a few more questions that people have about particular wines that, you know, if, if you're looking to spend over and above what, you're, what you'd normally spend, you want to make sure you're making the right decision. So the Wine Society's got a team of wine advisors anyway all year round. But of course, those queries really sort of well massively jump in 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 volume so buyers will step in uh, Mm. and uh, and help out as best we can so it's uh something a little bit more varied a little bit different and it's nice to actually get a taste of the festive fun as well (laughs) yeah so what would you advise uh i suppose we've got to talk turkey i find turkey a little bit boring actually but i love the trimmings so um but what would you recommend uh with a you know your classic christmas lunch or dinner oh it's a good question so you want something really that does go well with all the the size the trimmings if you've got your cranberry sauce and things like that that might be the strongest flavor on the dish so that's always worth keeping in mind so if you're going for a white wine you want something fairly full-bodied i would say personally something like a you know dry riesling would be delicious i think or uh this is probably uh, uh, uh almost someone's going to out bingo in a second but i'm going to say gruner veltliner uh as well because i always go on about it <laughs> yeah um but uh you know it's got enough body to to go with everything that's on the plate but equally if you're going for red i think something with a nice bit of crunchy acidity so beaujolais is a really nice choice and that would also be a wine that would do really really well going on into the into the rest of the day as well you know or into boxing day where you've got leftovers that nice crunchy acidity on a wine like that just absolutely perfect for cold cuts and things so something like Beaujolais or a nice crunchy new world Pinot Noir would be really good as well but yeah the main thing is you you have a a nice wine that you love drinking and you share it with the people that you love as well so you can't go Mm. wrong really no I I I think they'd be excellent with that as you say the 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 cranberry sauce element uh really strong Mm. bright flavor you've got a natural sort of yin and ying with uh with that uh, the, the, (laughs) the, 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 the new world Pinot Noir or the or the Beaujolais I have to say I'm I am very partial to sort of an oak integrated well integrated chardonnay with turkey actually. oh yeah i do think there's a bit of luxury you know a bit of butteriness i totally agree and again you know you've got enough body there to to sort of pair up nicely with everything else that's on the plate because uh, let's face it on a good christmas dinner there's uh, plenty of fatty foods and lots of butteriness and things like that so uh, a nice full oak chardonnay would be yeah oh spot on I'm hungry yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, you, I was going to say the very same thing. You've made me hungry. All right. Well, have a fabulous Christmas, uh, Freddie. Uh, look forward to hearing about uh, New Zealand uh, next time. And uh, yes. no doubt you'll have many uh, exciting uh, journeys ahead in uh, 2023 as well. But for now, thank you very much. Thanks, David. Merry Christmas. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Okay, well, my thanks to Freddie and to Joel, as always. Uh, Great pleasure to speak to them. Uh, Let's round off with a selection of medal winners at the IWSC in 2022. And we're focused on wines and spirits uh, this time. Let's kick off with a wine from New Zealand, a country, as we heard, next on Freddie's globe-trotting itinerary. Trinity Hill 
125 Chardonnay 2020 from the Gimlet Gravels in Hawke's Bay on the North Island. Uh, This won a gold medal and then went on to win a trophy. So best in show. Uh, This was uh, tasted by uh, Dursi Viana Jr. MW, a a regular guest here on The Drinking Hour, and also Freddie Bulmer, Andrew Johnson and Megan Clark, and then by the uh, tasting committee uh, who decide the trophies, including myself. Um, It won uh, 96 points initially before going on to get that trophy, and I remember it very fondly from the trophy judging process. Here's the tasting note. A lovely and inviting wine whose crisp, multi-layered palate shows a beautiful balance of smoky, toasty oak over flavours of fleshy yellow and tropical fruits and a preserved lemon zip. Long, concentrated and complex. I would add uh, that is the perfect wine for um, a Christmas lunch as well, if there's time. One of my own judging highlights uh, from 2022 was judging on location uh, in a couple of places, South Africa and in Conaliano Valdubiadene. The IWAC judges were teamed up with uh, local specialists in South Africa our judging sessions uh, held in PAL. Uh, this was a gold medal winner from those judging sessions, very much the grape of South Africa from a heritage producer uh, that also hosted us visiting judges. Kanonkop Estate, Pinotage, 2006. Here's what the panel said. Deliciously complex with tremendous flavours of juicy blackberries, succulent red plums, dried figs, black pepper, old leather and a waft of autumnal wood smoke. The finish is both spectacularly long and gloriously persistent. A truly magical wine with great potential. And uh, please forgive the indulgence. But uh, uh, as I mentioned, I was also fortunate enough to judge on location in the hills of Conigliano and Valdobbiadene, the Prosecco Hills, uh, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And it is the birthplace of Prosecco. And it is where Prosecco Superiore uh, comes from. Anna Spinato, Brut Non Vintage, uh, from uh, Valdobbiadene Superiore di Cartizzi uh, was a gold medal winner and also a trophy winner too, best in show again. Um, I was judging with uh, Matteo Montoni, uh, Master Sommelier, Andrew Johnson, Salvatore Castano, another sommelier, under the direction of Sarah Abbott, MW, who's been on the drinking hour a few times. Here's our tasting note from the time, an elegant nose of wild meadow herbs with bright lime acidity on tasting. There's a lovely fruit intensity to the palate with pear, nectarine and green apple skin coming through. Boasts a stony minerality on the finish. It's a wonderful wine. And let's not forget spirits. Uh, next, here's a gold medal winning whiskey, ideal for the festive season. A single malt that scored 95 points in the 2022 judging process. The Benromach Distillery 10-year-old single malt Scotch whiskey. Here's what the judges had to say. Oak is the dominant element at first with clove and ginger spice. It's supported by rich, rounded notes of sweet citrus and strawberry on the palate, balanced with bonfire embers, charred wood and malt biscuit. Yum. And uh, finally, just to show that it's uh, not all about um, big names uh, winning uh, these uh, particular awards. This is a, a one ideal for the festive season and at a pretty good price as well. Um, Aldi 12-year-old Speyside single malt Scotch whiskey, uh, tasted by some serious luminaries, including uh, Richard Patterson, OBE, uh, Guy Hodcroft, uh, Sandy Hislop, Greg Glass, Maureen Robinson. It won a silver medal, a strong one at that, with 93 points. 
Here's what the judges said. A muscat-like nose of green orchard fruit with delicate lemon notes and a sensation of smoke and oak. Waxy in texture, herbal notes and more smoke on the finish. And that is from Aldi at a very respectable price. So well done to them. Uh, that's it uh, for this festive edition of The Drinking Hour. Thank you for listening. Do join us next time for a dry January special looking at the um, incredible innovation in the world of low and no alcohol. Uh, but that's it for now. Uh, do have a very happy Christmas. Thanks for listening and goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.